I invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to Daniel chapter 2, verse 31. That's where we'll be kicking off our reading this morning. As promised last week, we are going to conclude our uh, look into this second chapter of Daniel that began with a Babylonian king, very powerful man, Nebuchadnezzar, who was having some troubling dreams. And this king has a problem. He can't either remember the dream or if he he does remember it, he doesn't want to tell his advisors the dream because he's suspicious of them. One of those has to be true. He goes to his advisors, the magicians, enchanters, sorcerers of Babylon, and tells them to tell him the dream and what it means. And when they cannot do it, he gets furious and decrees that all the wise men in Babylon should be destroyed. Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are among those wise men, though they were not initially uh, given the task of, of giving these dreams and the interpretation. When they are approached to be put to death, Daniel sends word back to the king that he can indeed tell him the dream and its interpretation. He actually doesn't know that for sure, so he and his friends get together and they have a prayer meeting, an emergency prayer meeting. And they pray to the Lord, and the Lord shows Daniel the dream and what it means. And and we are going to pick up with Daniel giving the contents of the dream and its interpretation. We want to look at that dream that Nebuchadnezzar has today. That's what we'll be focusing on. So we pick up the reading in verse 31. You saw, O king, and behold, a great image. This image, mighty and of exceeding brightness, stood before you, and its appearance was frightening. The head of this image was of fine gold, its chest and arms of silver, its middle and thighs of bronze, its legs of iron, its feet partly of iron and partly of clay. As you looked, a stone was cut out by no human hand, and it struck the image on its feet of iron and clay and broke them in pieces. And the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold all together were broken in pieces and became like the chaff of the summer threshing floors. The wind carried them away so that not a trace of them could be found. But the stone that struck the image became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. This was the dream. Now we will tell the king its interpretation. You, O king, the king of kings, to whom the God of heaven has given the kingdom, the power, and the might, and the glory, and into whose hand he has given, wherever they dwell, the children of man, the beasts of the field, and the birds of the heavens, making you rule over them all. You are the head of gold. Another kingdom inferior to you shall rise after you, and yet a third kingdom of bronze which shall rule over all the earth. And there shall be a fourth kingdom, strong as iron, because iron breaks to pieces and shatters all things. And like iron that crushes, it shall break and crush all these." And as you saw the feet and toes partly of potter's clay and partly of iron, it shall be a divided kingdom. But some of the firmness of iron shall be in it, just as you saw iron mixed with soft clay. And as the toes of the feet were partly iron and partly clay, so the kingdom shall be partly strong and partly brittle. As you saw the iron mixed with soft clay, so they will mix with one another in marriage, but they will not hold together, just as iron does not mix with clay. And in the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed, nor shall the kingdom be left to another people. It shall break in pieces all these kingdoms and bring them to an end, and it shall stand forever. 
just as you saw that a stone was cut from a mountain by no human hand and that it broke in pieces the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold. A great God has made known to the king what shall be after this. The dream is certain and its interpretation sure. Then King Nebuchadnezzar fell upon his face and paid homage to Daniel and commanded that an offering and incense be offered up to him. The king answered and said to Daniel, Truly your God is God of gods and Lord of kings and a revealer of mysteries, for you have been able to reveal this mystery. Then the king gave Daniel high honors and many great gifts and made him ruler over the whole province of Babylon and chief prefect over all the wise men of Babylon. Daniel made a request of the king and he appointed Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego over the affairs of the province of Babylon. But Daniel remained at the king's court. May God add his blessing to his holy word this morning. Well, I once lived in a kingdom. I lived in the United Kingdom. Some, some other people here did as well. And, uh, of course, the United Kingdom is short for its formal name, uh, which is the United Kingdom of Great Britain and Northern Ireland. Uh, Great Britain, of course, is the island that, uh, is consist- that consists of England, Scotland, and Wales. And then Northern Ireland is the northern part of, of Ireland that is loyalty to the throne. I used to live in England. And when we uh, look at uh, the kingdoms here today, you know, we have to think of it a little bit, what, what is a kingdom? We don't live in a kingdom in the United States. The word kingdom is the word king, obviously, with a suffix on the end, dom, dom, which means domain. So a kingdom is a king's domain. A kingdom usually has three elements. It's got a monarch, some territory, and some people who are subjects. So when we say the United Kingdom of Great Britain and Northern Ireland, we mean everything under the rule of the monarch, of Great Britain and Northern Ireland. And we especially mean the people who live in these territories because what would be a kingdom if it had no people in it? You can rule over a, uh, you know, the kingdom of Deer Island, uh, but it'd be a very lonely kingdom because you'd be the only person there. Well, we come to the passage today. It talks a lot about kingdoms. And it, it, we're going to see today that there is a kingdom that God is setting up where the monarch is God, the territory is everything because God is a sovereign God over the entire universe. He created it and he's king over it all and it has some people in it. Jesus said, the kingdom of God is within you. So God conquers people's hearts and he rules over those people. They're called Christians. So when the Bible speaks of the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven... It means God's rule expressed within the hearts of people. A few minutes ago, when we prayed the Lord's Prayer, we prayed, your kingdom come, your will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. We've prayed that, your kingdom come, so many times. You probably played Little League baseball or softball or soccer or whatever. You may have said the Lord's Prayer over and over again like I used to do when I was a child. And, uh, you know, we were just thinking about playing ball and, and what was going to get us to, to get the game started. We weren't worried about praying. So we pray this prayer, and maybe we don't think much when we're praying it about what we're actually saying when we say, Your kingdom come, or the other petitions in the prayer for that matter. But when we say, when we're asking that God's kingdom might uh, come, we're asking that His kingdom might increase on the earth. 
that his rule might be more apparent. You know, your kingdom come, your will be done. It's a great prayer to pray, obviously. And ultimately what we're asking is that Jesus might return and reign over all the new heavens and new earth, put all enemies uh, under his feet, uh, ultimately. Well, in our text today, we have an amazing thing happening. God is revealing truth about his kingdom to a pagan king, this guy Nebuchadnezzar. And Nebuchadnezzar uh, was a megalomaniac. Uh, He was not a, a very nice king at all. So it's rather odd that God has revealed himself to this pagan king. But God, in his grace, has provided this man of God, Daniel, to make sure that his message is clear to this pagan king and to us as well. Well, as we read, King Nebuchadnezzar dreamt of this statue that represented his kingdom and three other kingdoms that would come after his. Now, the majority of conservative Bible scholars... Uh, traditionally understood these kingdoms that came after the Babylonians to be the Persians, the Medes and the Persians, then the Greeks, and then the Romans. So the Babylonians are the head of gold, uh, the Persians are the chest and arms of silver, the Greeks are the middle and thighs of bronze, and the Romans are represented by the legs of iron and feet, partly of iron and partly of clay. Now, how this really does not make much difference for us today, what these kingdoms were. Uh, it's almost superfluous to the dream, which you know, parts of the statue were which kingdoms, because the focal point of the dream is not the statue itself, but rather it is this stone cut out by no human hand which struck the image and broke it in pieces so that it blew away like chaff in the wind until not a trace could be found. But this stone becomes a great mountain and fills the whole earth. The identity of the stone in this kingdom is the most important part of the dream. And of course, it doesn't take a Bible scholar to understand that this final kingdom uh, this, this great kingdom that fills the earth is Christ and his kingdom that destroys all others, this messianic kingdom of God. Well, we've been studying Daniel and we've been asking ourselves, what does Daniel tell us about living for Christ in a hostile environment? Because that's what Daniel was doing. He was, he was exiled to Babylon, uh, a nation that did not uh, value his religion, uh, his God, uh, his, the ways of his people. And they were in, indeed trying to erase all that from Daniel's memory banks and reprogram him to be a good Babylonian. Much the same way we, uh, we, uh, the things we encounter today. You know, we are Christians. And uh, there's a lot of information coming at us that is trying to get us off track from being Christians, try to sway us from our beliefs from our values, from the God that we worship. Daniel navigates this, and not only does he navigate it keeping his integrity, uh, keeping his commitment to the Lord, but he has a great impact as well upon not one nation, but two nations, the Babylonians and the Persians. So what does this dream tell us about living for Christ in a hostile environment? Well, it is easy 
for Christians to be discouraged within and discounted without. And of course, Daniel could have been discouraged as he saw what was happening to his people. The, the Babylonians coming and destroying Jerusalem and sending his people off into exile and his culture being discounted. He was renamed, taking away uh, the name Daniel that reflects his faith in God and giving him a name uh, Belshazzar which reflected a Babylonian God and learning all these new ways. He could have been discouraged by that and as the, that culture discounted his, his beliefs. So in the same way, we can become discouraged when we encounter uh, the opposition in our world and being discounted in our society, especially when in years past we weren't discounted. We were in a majority position. But we read the news, we see the vote, we understand the, the direction that our country is headed, and it is easy to become very discouraged in these days. And the culture at large sees the church struggling and waning, and the culture easily dismisses the church as antiquated, passe, and irrelevant. How do we live for Christ in this increasingly hostile world and not lose heart? Well, this is the question we're exploring today because the text before us puts us uh, in a position where we can find strength and hope and even confidence for these difficult days in which we live. The future might look uncertain and bleak, but Christians can revel in the truths that we find in this dream given to Nebuchadnezzar centuries ago. And we can find ourselves strengthened and our hope increase, and we can face the future with confidence. And I want each of you to walk out of here today uh, stronger, more hopeful, and more confident, not in your own strength, not confident in yourself. Uh, this is not going to be a hope pep rally but hope in Christ and his kingdom, confident in him, strong in the Lord. Now, how do we get there? I want to do just a simple thing. Just simply look at what this passage says about Christ and his kingdom and letting that transform us by the renewing of our mind, giving us perspective on things. This dream tells us about Christ and his kingdom, and you can find it all mostly in, in verse 44 of this chapter. We're going to focus in on what it says there. And I've given you an outline. I hope you have a copy. Five things, of, five points we have today. And the first thing is that this kingdom that comes and destroys all these other kingdoms, this kingdom is God's creation. The kingdom of Christ is God's creation. Verse 44 tells us, In the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom. This kingdom is not a human creation. It's initiated by God. He is the one putting it in place. Human leaders rise and fall. Uh, they rise up with their agendas and power plays and they get themselves into positions of authority. Humans group together and they gain power and territory and they rule. And that's why humans are always concerned about government and we're so interested in politics. Who's in power? Uh, who's not in power? Who do we want in power? How can we get them into power? And we're always struggling for power. And that's the nature of, of humanity. And humans are always setting up governments and rule and kingdoms. But Christ's kingdom is no human institution. It is divinely appointed. In fact, he's setting it up even now in the midst of earthly kingdoms even. Notice that it's what it says in verse 44. 
in the days of those kings, if we take it to be the Babylonian, Persian, Greek, and Roman empires that are represented by that statue, uh, it would be during that time that Christ came to earth, during the Roman era. Christ entered the world during the time of the Romans. And what did he preach? What was the first thing he preached when he started his earthly ministry? He said, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. He was initiating it. God himself, the divine word, the second person of the Trinity, took on human flesh and dwelt among us. He initiated his kingdom. He came to rule in the hearts of people. He gathered around him disciples and followers. And then when he ascended, he, he initiated the church, which is the representation of his kingdom on earth. We're going to sing in a few minutes, I love thy kingdom, Lord. The church. The church is his kingdom. So God has set it up. God has given us his church. It's a divine institution. And we were talking uh, yesterday and about the church and, and uh, John said, uh, you know, a lot of people think the church is a human institution, but it's not. It's, it's God's institution. He's the one that set it up. And I said, that's perfect. You're preaching my sermon a day early. And, and in the providence of God and his rule, he's, he's, he's trying to communicate that to us. This church is important. It's God's kingdom on the earth. We're one part of that. Of course, it's all faithful churches throughout the world. But God is setting it up. And he's, he initiated it with Jesus and he's continuing to cause it to grow throughout the earth, as we will see. Secondly, what do we see about Christ and his kingdom when we're facing these other kingdoms around us, these other powers and rulers, and, and that they oppose the kingdom of God? We see that this kingdom of Christ is an indestructible and infallible kingdom. It's a kingdom that shall never be destroyed, nor shall the kingdom be left to another people. Human kingdoms rise and fall, wax and wane, they come and they go. And that's one thing the dream of the statue tells us, as well as our own uh, understanding of human history. One kingdom rises up, it has its day, and then another kingdom comes and replaces it. One hum human kingdom gives way to another human kingdom in succession, but God's kingdom will never be destroyed. Kingdoms succeed in gaining power and control, but they all will eventually fail. But God's kingdom will never fail. You know, we, live, we don't live in a kingdom, but we live in a government, uh, in a dominion. And, and even America, one day, it's going to cease to be. It's going to fail. But God's kingdom will never fail. It will not be replaced. No one's going to come in and take it over, ever. It cannot be destroyed, no matter how hard one tries. We've seen people try throughout history. Communism has tried to eradicate the church, to, to do away with the kingdom of God. And as we look over in China and Eastern Europe, what do we see? We see the church growing. We see the kingdom of God having great victories there. So this kingdom is indestructible, and it will never fail. Three, this kingdom is an all-victorious and eternal kingdom. Verse 44 goes on to say, It shall break in pieces all these kingdoms and bring them to an end, and it shall stand forever. God's kingdom will be the last kingdom standing. You know, there's, there's all kinds of kingdoms that come and that go, but God's kingdom is going to be the last one standing. When all the smoke clears, it's going to be God's kingdom and nobody else. That's it. Guaranteed. As Daniel said when he finished the dream, the dream is certain and his interpretation is sure. 
I mean, what a great statement to say. After he's given Nebuchadnezzar his dream and he's told him what it means, the dream is certain and it's absolutely 100% sure. It's guaranteed. And that's the truth. God's kingdom is all victorious and it's eternal. It's everlasting. In the Gettysburg Address, President Abraham Lincoln called upon Americans to be dedicated to the great task of ensuring that, quote, government of the people, by the people, for the people, shall not perish from the earth. But it will perish from the earth. Now, don't take that to be me being anti-American. I believe that government of the people, by the people, for the people is the greatest system of government the world has seen, the greatest system of human government. But it will be replaced one day by a, a government that will be described as of the people, by God, for His glory and their good. That's ultimately how things are going to shake out. And we can invest our time and energy uh, in preserving uh, our American government. That is a worthy cause, I think, as long as it's subservient to the ultimate goal of preserving and building up God's kingdom. Because that's the one that's eternal. That's the one that's going to, to remain, be standing in the end. Look at verse 35. The iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, the gold, all together were broken in pieces and became like the chaff of the summer threshing floors. And the wind carried them away so that not a trace of them could be found. Have you ever seen someone uh, threshing wheat? They, they have a, a big rake or scoop and they throw it up in the air. Uh, especially on a windy day. And they throw it up and the wind blows the chaff away so that the, and the wheat is heavier and it falls back straight back down on the ground. So you can get rid of the chaff. And, he, and he's describing these earthly kingdoms like that chaff. The chaff of the summer threshing floors. The wind just sweeps it away and, it, and it's never seen again. It echoes Psalm 2, which I've put in your outline where the Father says to the Son, where God the Father says to Christ, the Messiah, Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage, and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel, like just pieces of clay discarded and trampled underfoot and crushed. The coming of the kingdom of God occurs in such a way that all empires collapse before it. The establishment of the kingdom of God runs parallel to the rise and fall of the kingdoms of this world. They come, they go, but God's kingdom is growing, steadily growing, growing, becoming stronger until it fills the whole earth. According to the dream, it was present during all these kingdoms that we mentioned before. It's been present since that time, and it's going to remain forever. You know, science fiction books, they never talk about the church. You know, they never have... A, in Star Wars, the church. People aren't going to the Presbyterian church and on, on the Starship Enterprise, for example. It's just not there. But the church is going to be there, according to God's word. In the year 2525, as the old song says, you know, the church is going to be there. The song doesn't say that. But it's going to be there if we last that long. The church will never perish. 
It will always be here. God's kingdom never comes to an end. Other kingdoms rise and fall, but God's kingdom lasts forever. Fourthly, this kingdom is a universal kingdom. Verse 35 tells us the stone that struck the image became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. You see, it's not limited to Israel or Babylon or Asia or Europe or America. Uh, no, it fills the whole earth. The citizens of the kingdom of God are from every tongue and tribe and nation, the Bible tells us. God's kingdom is growing everywhere. One example. I mean, this is part of it. You know, we might think, oh, you know, we look around us and we, we see in our culture the church waning. But throughout the world, the church is growing in other parts of the world, in Africa and in Asia, Korea. 100 years ago, there was not a Christian church in Korea. Missionaries went there. And today, Korea sends more missionaries out than any other nation in the world except America. And they may have already passed America. There are Koreans all over the world sharing the gospel. After this service this afternoon, there's a group of Koreans who will meet and worship right here in Biloxi, Mississippi. When I worked in England and planted churches there, there were Korean Presbyterian churches all over the place. They had a Presbyterian. They, they, uh, they reached out to the, to the world. They were sending missionaries everywhere. So what a success for it. A hundred years ago, no Christians at all. God is building his church. It's a universal kingdom. People from every tongue and tribe and nation. We can get discouraged as we look around us, but we've got to have a broader vision than that. God is building his church in the world. And we need to hop on board with his kingdom and what he's doing. It's an indestructible, infallible, all-victorious, eternal, and universal kingdom that is God's own creation. And fifthly, this kingdom originates in obscurity and apparent weakness. See, it's represented at the beginning as just a mere stone. Very unpretentious beginnings. But isn't that where the kingdom originated? What is more obscure than being born in a manger, in a food trough for animals in Bethlehem? What's more unpretentious than growing up in Nazareth, in a poor carpenter's home? Nazareth was the wrong side of the tracks. That's where Christ came from. What's more unpretentious than walking around Galilee, preaching that the kingdom of God is at hand? And what's more apparently weak than being crucified on a Roman cross, rejected by the very people he came to save? Yet when Christ appeared, the kingdom dawned, and a kingdom started that will triumph and is triumphing in spite of what the circumstances around us is telling us and what people around us is telling us. Jesus is that stone. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and the whole structure is being built on that rock. It's an everlasting kingdom and it will ultimately triumph. So why should we be strengthened this morning? Why should we be hopeful? Why should we be confident? Because the people of God already belong to the kingdom of God. If you're trusting in Christ, you're a part of that kingdom. And that kingdom is an everlasting kingdom. And even as uh, kingdoms crumble around us, even as governments seem to be falling apart, well, God's kingdom is progressing and moving forward and becoming stronger. See, 
Christians have stopped trying to build their own kingdoms. And we're going to talk about that in a couple of weeks when Nebuchadnezzar uh, has to sort out himself and who's actually the king and who's not. Because we can set up our own kingdoms, and that's a whole other way of applying this. We like to be a kingdom of one. We want everybody to serve us. But the Bible tells us to seek first his kingdom, his kingdom and his righteousness. That's what we should be being a part of. Christ's kingdom, this everlasting kingdom. Do you belong to God's kingdom? Are you a citizen of that kingdom? If you do, then you have the assurance from God's word that the kingdom to which you belong will never fail. It will only rise, it will never end, it will ultimately triumph. The world in which we live, yes, it's difficult. We live in a world that's dominated by kingdoms that are increasingly hostile to, our, to the kingdom of God, the kingdom to which we belong. But we know where our loyalties lie, and we will remain faithful to him. May God help us to be faithful to our triumphant King Jesus. And may his kingdom come, and may his will be done in us and through us on earth as it is in heaven. Let's pray together.